Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Today's guest is Susan McCauley, a writer and producer of paranormal, fantasy, and horror films and fiction for adults, young adults, and middle grade audiences and readers. Susan, when she was eight years old, sent a poem to a NASA astronaut. And her love of writing just continued to take off from there. She's also explored acting. She studied with Robert Carnegie and Jeff Goldblum at Playhouse West. She's written films, plays, a ton of novellas and short stories. And her most recent novel, Ghost Hunters, Pirate's Curse, A Ghost Hunting Adventure, came out earlier this month. A spooky, yet fun, middle grade novel aimed for kids 8 to 12, but really anyone 8 and above is going to enjoy this. It's set in New Orleans. It's got all kinds of charm and culture involved in it, and it's about a 12-year-old with my middle name, Alex, who can speak to ghosts. Ghosts are pretty commonplace in New Orleans, and so there's lots of fun adventure going on in there and going on in here in this conversation with Susan. We're chatting all things writing. We're chatting acting. We're chatting flying to outer space. We haven't actually done it, but there's some outer space involved in this as well. Plus some creepy experiences that Susan has had in her life. There's lots of good stuff. So be sure to stick around for all of it. If you'd like to support Good People Cool Things, you can do so by heading over to the shop, goodpeoplecoolthings.com slash shop. Pick up some hats, shirts, hoodies, a mug. You can have some coffee. So when you're getting all spooked out reading stuff, that's scary. You got something warm to comfort you. Always very helpful. And of course, you can always reach out to me, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. If you have a guest for the show, want to hear more about something, or just want to tell me a corny joke, because you know we always end the show with a corny joke, and I would love to hear yours so I can give you a shout out as I share it on a future episode. But enough about that. Let's hop into the conversation with Susan. I say this every episode, and I still believe it, that it's kind of a cliched question of give us your elevator pitch, but I like to put a twist on it by also having you tell us the elevator we're on while you're giving this pitch. Okay, how far back do you want me to go? That's the. <laughs> that's up to you. How long's the elevator ride? Okay, that's true. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. I was, born in, I was born in Texas on the Gulf Coast, and in a way, I like to think, you know, maybe that experience kind of... Um, I don't know, caused inspiration. I grew up across the street from NASA. So I went to school with some of the astronauts kids. And then, so we were, you know, we were surrounded by space and boats and it just, it was a great neighborhood. And my parents were really supportive. And I went to, I went to a little private school when I was younger um, and then middle school and high school, I went to a public school, but I had a really um, strong supportive foundation. But I think I remember I loved writing since I was eight. And um, one of our um, friends was Charlie Bolden. He was, you know, became the director of NASA later under Obama. And Charlie was going up into space for the first time when um, I was a kid. And so I wrote a poem for him about space and he took it up on the shuttle with him. So that was so cool and so inspiring. And I said, so that's why I think kind of, you know, the space and the water and everything around me kind of led to my inspiration when I was, when I was younger. And then I went to um, University of Houston undergrad, and then I went to California. I worked on Powder, the movie, when I was a teenager, and I was getting ready to graduate from college, and I met Jeff Goldblum when we were um, on the set, and it kind of like 
things just fell into place. I did a small role in the classroom scene. And then Jeff and I, I was also interning. And so Jeff and I were like in the back of this, we're sitting on the back of a truck in the middle of this field. And they were shooting like an aerial shot. I think Powder was running down, Sean Patrick Flannery was running down the field and they had this aerial shot. So Jeff and I were sitting there and he had this script he was reading. And so he goes, read this with me. So we started reading the script back and forth. And then I got called away to haul ice or some nice intern job. <laughs> and um, and uh, apparently Jeff said to somebody, one of my friends, she's really good. And so from there, he asked me, invited me to study acting with him and Bob Carnegie at Playhouse West in California, in Los Angeles. And um, then my parents came to visit the set uh, like a week or two later and Jeff talked to them. And, you know, my they'd been on the fence about acting and writing and all that. They were like, oh, you need to do something stable, especially my mother. She's like, be an accountant. I took one accounting class and I left crying. And I called her and I said, I cannot do that, mom. I'm sorry. I will be miserable. So Jeff talked to my parents on the set and he told them he thought, you know, I had ability and I should come and study. And that really kind of swayed the needle for me because having him when he didn't need to say that, come to them and talk to them. After that, I had their, they were always supportive, but after that, I really had their full support about moving to California and pursuing acting. And that was initially what I was pursuing was acting. So I studied at Playhouse West for a couple of years and, um, you know, I loved it, but I'm, I'm tall, I'm tall and blonde, but I'm not, you know, a bikini babe. <laughs> and that is very much what, unfortunately, you know, when you're a teen or in your twenties, that really is, or at least at the time was what Hollywood was looking for. And so it was really frustrating going to castings with that, you know, pushing up against me. And so I was like, I'd always loved writing. And I was like, you know what, I, I wrote a short film and we made the short film. And I was like, I really love writing. I need to focus more on writing because then I don't have to worry about, you know, what image I fit for a casting director or not. And so I um, applied to USC and I got into their um, master's of professional writing program. So I focused on screenwriting and playwriting there, but I also did fiction as well when I was at USC. And so that was fantastic. And I stayed in LA a little while longer and I taught some college English and I did a few commercials. And, and I was like, just for some reason, a bug bit me in the butt. And I was like, I need to go to London. <laughs> and I had never, I had never even visited London at that point. So I had never even been there. I just something said, Susie, you got to go to London. I'm like, okay, I go to London. So my mom surprised me with a trip. And so we went to London with some family and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I'm like, I've got to figure out a way to go there. And so I was looking for jobs. And when I was looking for jobs, I saw that the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, RADA, and King's College had a master's program in text and performance. And I thought, oh, how cool is that? And so I applied and I got in and I was, you know, ecstatic. And I moved over there for that program. And it was one of the, I was one of the best years of my life. I mean, the masters in England are usually one year instead of like here, two or three. I wish it would have been two or three there because it was such a fantastic experience. You know, we, we did acting and writing and directing, but you really got to focus on your area of expertise. So my thesis was playwriting. Um, and so that was just a fantastic year. I met, you know, fabulous actors. I got to meet Alan Rickman, which was really nice. And um, Ben Kingsley, his son was at RADA when I was there. And so I met those guys, but I also met these fabulous up and coming actors. And a lot of them are doing great things. And it was just a supportive, amazing place to train. 
And then I didn't want to leave London when that year was over. So I stayed and I taught for a little while. And then finally it was like, okay, I'm working so hard to make a living because it's so expensive there. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't pursue acting or writing. So I didn't have a visa for that. I had a teaching visa. <laughs> so I was working like 60 hours a week and not having any time to write. And it was like, okay, it's time to go back and, you know, and, and focus on what I really wanted to do. So I came back to the U S uh, ended up meeting my husband, got married. We moved to the DC area for a few years. Um, totally had a weird, wacky change in life and like didn't write for a couple of years at all. We both worked for the government for a few years. <laughs> and then we came back to Houston with our newborn son. My husband works for Exxon and I'm like, I have to write. I, it's, it was driving me crazy. I hadn't written in a few years. So for the past 10 years, I've been refocused on writing. And so fiction and screenwriting, both. What kind of elevator? Um, we're, we're going to the top of the Empire State Building. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. People are getting on at every floor. Oh, my and gosh. someone accidentally pushed uh, eight buttons. Yes. Instead of just the top one. Yes. Always, always a common, always a common concern getting on an elevator. Absolutely. Uh, people hitting the wrong thing. Well, there's a lot to dive into in there. I, I guess I can start. I, when you said London, I was thinking... I don't know if you saw this. This was back in 2018, I think. London by the Tower Bridge put up a life, like a huge replica of Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park. That's I did not, I did not know that. And it's so funny. I lived on Tower Bridge Road, so I lived <laughs> in the old Tower Bridge Hotel. So when David Blaine did his stunt, like hanging in that box without eating or drinking for weeks, whatever it was, I could see him out my window. <laughs> Just making eye contact and giving oh, him it inspirational was, advice. Oh, it was crazy. You know, people were obnoxious. They would drive by at like two in the morning and honk their horns. And I lived above a pub. And so people would come out of the pub drunk and screaming at poor David Blaine. <laughs> it was, but I mean, he knew what he was doing. So, I mean, I guess, you know, whatever. But yeah, it was- like a, When you sign up for that, you, yeah, you yes. know what you're getting into. Yes. And I saw him get out when they brought him out. I mean, they had an ambulance there and they basically, he couldn't walk. I mean, they like put him in the ambulance and took off to the hospital. But it was pretty, it was pretty wild. I mean, you had magicians from all over the world coming there and press. It was like a big camp, camp out city. Well, fantastic stuff all around. We don't want to get into the writing, but as an actor, I have to ask, because I say as an actor, like I'm an actor. I've, I've dabbled in occasional like improv classes, but I do think obviously a lot of acting takes elements of improv. Absolutely. As doing it. So do you have a favorite improv game? Well, I studied Meisner for two and a half years. And I mean, the, the core of Meisner, do you know much about Meisner? I do not, no. But there, it, it, the foundation of it are repetition. So you look at what's right in front of you and you make a simple observation and the person with you just repeats it back. So you're focused in those improvisations, not on the words you're saying, but on the emotion and on what you're seeing, what you're getting right in front of you. So then the emotion floats on the words and you're not thinking as an actor about the text. So they would be like, the text is for the writer to write. You're focused on what's going on inside of you and outside of you and what you're experiencing. So it's a back and forth give and take just based on what's in front of you, whether it's an emotional observation about the person's state of being or um, something that they are, they're wearing or something about them. So it's just a very simple back and forth, back and forth. And it builds then with emotional intent beneath it. And so I really like that because, because it was simple and it took the brain out of acting. And I think... And, you know, I mean, by saying the brain, obviously we have to use our brains for our emotions, <laughs> but, 
but it took the thought out of it and it, it helped distill the feelings and the emotions. So you're working more emotionally and more truthfully. Yeah, I think having done improv classes, I think that's a very common barrier uh, of just you, you know, you're trying to think of something funny or that fits with the scene. But like you're saying, like when you just lose yourself in, in it and are really giving it all emotionally and being truthful, like that's when you have the best scenes. It's not when it's like, I'm trying to get that clever line in there. No, absolutely. It's like, and for, for us in the Meisner, it's like, no, that's for the writer, you know, focus on, on the, on the emotions, on the feelings. So it was like, they would describe it as the emotions were like the ocean and the waves. The actor was the ocean and the waves and the, the text was the boat. So, and then when we, when we would get to actually scenes, we would remove all the punctuation and capitalization and you would just memorize your lines. There was one, one, this was one exercise. So you'd memorize all your lines and take out the other person's. So basically you have this chunk of lines and you don't know when the other person's supposed to speak or not. And then you would do the scene together and you'd know the words so well, you wouldn't have to think about it, but it was just emotion. And you would respond to them when you, when it felt appropriate. And it was amazing how you would pretty much hit where you were supposed to say the line. So that was a terrifying, but really interesting exercise. Yeah, that sounds super intense, but... <laughs> yeah, it was. Oh, it was. But it was good. Magical. And you said that you've done over the, the past decade or so, you're writing for both film and plays and uh, novellas and short stories and all that good stuff. Do you have a different writing process based on what you're writing for, or is it still kind of the same overall uh, way that you work? Screenwriting, definitely have to get in a different mindset from fiction. Um, I still use, I love Christopher Vogler's Writer's Journey. It, it's based on Joseph Campbell's myth structure. So I use kind of that structure for fiction and scripts because it really, it works. It's like universal storytelling and what works. Um, and it also looks at, you know, different um, archi character archetypes, which I, which I also look at when I'm writing. But for screenwriting, it's so visual. What can you see here? And what can you see in here? Light, motion, sound. And, you know, fiction, you can get to the character's head. So I, I'm definitely, I write at a much quicker pace, I think, with fiction, which is great for, well, I think for, for young adults and kids, especially. But even as an adult, I can't get through a novel where they go on and on and on for pages of description. I, I find myself scanning. I'm like, okay, where's the plot pick up again? So for me as a reader and a writer, I do like to be visual, but I also like the pace to move. So the person feels like they're there living it. So in that sense, it's the same, but I definitely need to get in a different mindset when I'm writing screenplays over fiction, for sure. I just had a flashback to high school and reading uh, The Odyssey. and Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, just yes. <laughs> you'd, I'd, I'd lose track of who was talking because... They'd introduce the person about to say something and then give an eight-page description of what was happening. Uh, Absolutely. And the other challenge, I think, for high school, this is the teacher part of me, is when they try to teach Shakespeare in the English classroom and want you to sit there and read it. And it's like, no, people, this was meant to be performed. <laughs> That's how it makes sense. When you, you know, either get the, I, I think, ideally, let the kids see the play or the film and then let them read it in different parts as a class, because then they'll understand what they're, you know, what they're reading. But oh, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I always enjoyed the uh, the men with their this again. This is just reading it, but it was a visual thing within the book. They had the men with their heads that were below their shoulders, and I don't know why this yes. sticks with me. But it's it was that just such so a funny. such a goofy little photo of like 
This guy's head is just is... on his chest. Like it's, his face is on his chest. I thought you were going to say men in dresses or something at first. <laughs> I did a um, part of a play I wrote was per, uh, performed at the Tower of London. And it was so funny because we were doing it in conjunction with some Shakespeare pieces. And the guys were actually in some of the scenes, the men were playing women like they did during that time. So I remember seeing these guys <laughs> trying to put corsets and dresses on. And it was hysterical. <laughs> Well, now I have oh to ask, because this is something I saw in London, but I believe it's um, American originally, but the Reduced Shakespeare Company? Yes, I haven't seen it. I need to see it. I've heard it's hysterical. It was very entertaining. I, I remember my, our family went to London, and I've I've been back since, but I, th I think I, I must have been like 14 or 15 mm -hmm. when this was going on. Certainly in like the age of like everything is lame and i don't oh, want to yes. do i don't want to yes. do anything but i also like i get it i'm in a foreign country so i was like okay i guess i'll go to this thing um and i just thought i thought it was hysterical and i i bought the the dvd who were three other people not the people in the show oh wow but that's awesome I, I i thought even even the dvd is still very funny i'll throw it on every once in a while and i'm like i know what's coming and i'm still laughing so that's awesome yeah yeah we're sp we were supposed to go to england this past december but of course thank you covid we did not so we're gonna try again uh this coming december hopefully we'll be able to go safely and um if we do then uh hopefully we're gonna see some shows which would be awesome Excellent. looking forward to your reviews oh yes i can't wait <laughs> And you you kind of touched on this a little bit with we're gonna we're gonna jump back to to writing how you wrote a poem when you were eight you said yes first of all do you still remember the poem I don't remember the poem when okay. we we recently moved and I found like a whole bunch of my poems from when I was a, a child so they are in they're in a trunk and they're marked so I told my son he will have my early poems I need to really dig it out and like type them all up so I have them all together. And I haven't done that, but I did find a lot of them. Nice, nice. That's the first step. I feel like I, I have lost so much writing to the ether over yes. the years. So. I mean, you know, none of it would be obvious. None of it would be publishable. But it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting seeing the the process and the the journey. Oh, absolutely. One of my friends out of the blue just uh, texted me a couple of weeks ago saying, I uh, he he had found his old. I don't know. We were like second graders uh, and had to do like a little coloring book or um, awesome. just a short story. And it was about how us, like the the group that he had texted, we were all uh, basketball players. And we, I think we, we went in the sewer or something to like fight these monsters off so that we could save the Chicago Bulls. Oh, that's awesome. Captured them or something. It was a whole, <laughs> a whole ordeal, but it was phenomenal. And I hadn't, I hadn't heard from him in probably like 10 years. Oh, <laughs> wow. Just like, this is amazing. Like That's awesome. Love it. Love it. Did he send you pictures of it, I hope, or a scan of it or something? Yes. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Which was just, yeah, just <laughs> the the drawing also is phenomenal because, you know, we're all fantastic artists in <laughs> second grade. Yeah. I, oh. Actually, I think I peaked in artistry in second grade. I drew a Monet and everyone raved over it. And I was like, maybe I'm good at drawing. And then no. Yeah. My, pe nice. my peak my peak was about then as well. <laughs> Yeah, if I'm tracing, maybe it's passable, but yeah, same. It's not I, me drawing it. <laughs> no, I cannot draw to save my life. I would love to, but no, I can't. <laughs> so you have your poem. Yes. And it, it sounds like that was kind of inspired more by your experiences 
uh, growing up near NASA and, and just kind of being in that environment. But do you remember the first thing or an early thing you read where you're like, wait a minute, like, I love that. I want to write stuff like that. I remember, well, it was, it's funny. My dad was dyslexic and he was terrified that I was going to be dyslexic. And I just, this is the one that I remember the most strongly. I was in fifth grade. We read Where the Red Fern Grows, which I found incredible, incredible, but incredibly sad as well. And we had an essay test. And I remember that we were all doing the tests and I was still writing because she said, you know, answer in detail. And so I wasn't finished. It was time for recess. And I said, can I please stay in and work on my test during recess? And I wrote the entire recess. And then I turned my test in. And when I got it back, I had, you know, I had a good grade, but she wrote not that much detail with an exclamation mark. (laughs) And so, you know, for me, that was a turning point that, wow, I really like writing. I realized it. And then for my dad, he said when he saw that, he was no longer worried that I would have dyslexia. (laughs) (laughs) So for both of us, that, that, that moment made an impact. And then in sixth grade and on, I mean, I started taking, I think, you know, more advanced English classes and things like that. But, um, but I mean, eight was the like magic number. When I started writing poems, I made my first short film when I was eight, which was hysterical with my cousins. Um, it was about this drunk man in an alleyway. And he was, my cousin was dressed up in my grandfather's clothes and it was just, you know, it was a goofy kids thing. But, um, but all that started at eight, but it was around 10, 11 when, when it clicked that I really loved writing. So getting started early. And I love that uh, a drunk man in an alley is, <laughs> is your, your debut film. Well, my, my, um, my grandparents, like they lived in this amazing, it's they, like my aunt still lives there in this amazing old farmhouse that the farmer had built. It's over a hundred years old now, but of course the city, they live outside of Detroit. So the city grew up around them. So next to them was an, is an alley now and a gas station. You know, so there was a little bit of crime in the area. So I was probably, I'm guessing, was pulling from that. (laughs) (laughs) That and I saw my first prostitute as a kid with my parents in Detroit. And I was like, you know, oh, my gosh, what is this? So all that stuff, I'm sure, fed into that, where I was going with that. (laughs) Lovely, lovely. Yeah, I mean, you pull from your life experiences. So that that makes sense. Absolutely. And your most recent book, Ghost Hunters. Yes, Pirate's, Pirate's Curse. Curse. The second in the Ghost Hunters series. It is. With uh, a ghost hunting adventure is this one and Bones in the Wall, the first one. So tell us about this series. Did you want it to be a series right away or did you write one and you're like, oh, I've got enough for a second? No, I knew this one. I knew this one was going to be a series for sure. Um, my editor and I were talking and she, we were originally like five books, do five books. And, you know, it's, it's picking up, it's getting good reviews. People are really liking it. Reaching readers is a, is a, is a big challenge. Um, so we're going to do four books for now, and then I'm going to do another series. But if Ghost Hunters continues picking up steam, then I will probably go back and do more in the middle grade. I do have an idea for a young adult spinoff too, following the kids as teenagers. But I, I definitely knew I wanted to do it as, as a series for sure. Nice. Yeah, I think a spinoff. I, I immediately uh, jumped Rugrats, jumped to my mind. Of right. Yes. How, I, I feel like those episodes are kind of divisive of like Rugrats as teenagers, but I always, I always liked it. I liked when they absolutely, when yeah, get us some new, new experiences. Well, I mean, out there. you know, and between, I mean, this is like upper middle grade, middle grade. I've had some. I've had one. There was one t- teacher who read 
the first ghost hunters book to her seven-year-old because it, the, it was too advanced for the reading level, but apparently the kid really loved it. Fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders, they seem to love it. Um, you know, it's not too scary. It's a little scary, but you know, they're kids. I want them to have fun. To me, it's like, to me, the books are like riding the Haunted Mansion ride at Disney. It's kind of spooky, but it's also a lot of fun at the same time. Nice, nice. And is that is that kind of your motivation of it of like, because for, for my reference, I think the scariest stuff I would enjoy growing up was like Goosebumps. Um, yes. And then I, I really didn't get into Are You Afraid of the Dark? But I don't know if it was necessarily because I was scared of it. I think I just watched one and was like, well, whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, what one of my teachers, I think it was in I can't remember, it was third or fourth grade, read one of those Are You Afraid of the Dark stories, and it scared them <laughs> out of me for, <laughs> for years. Um, but definitely I didn't read, I mean, I didn't read, I don't know if I might be too old to have read R.L. Stein when I was a kid. I don't even know when those books started coming out, but I didn't read R.L. Stein. A lot of people liken my Ghost Hunter series to R.L. Stein. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Stroud at all. He's a British author and he writes a ghost series with these young, they're young teens um, going after ghosts. To me, it's more like that. Uh, R.L. Stein is obviously brilliant, but he's very, very plot focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely focus on plot, but I, I try to have the characters growth development character arcs just as important as the plot. So to me, that's how I see it's different from R.L. Stein. Yeah, I think I think that's a cool distinction too. And I, I feel like I've read Jonathan Straub before. His, he wrote a series called Bartimaeus, which I first discovered when I was living in London. And then he wrote uh, Lockwood and Co., which is his ghost series. And he just came out with a new series. I can't remember the name of it. I think it's set in the West, like Wild West type thing. Well, I guess I have uh, I have some stuff to add to my reading list then. Absolutely, it's fun. It's fun, and that's why I, write, I love writing the middle grades because it's fun. And, you know, once you get into YA, you don't have to, but, you know, definitely a romance starts entering the picture. And it's like my, my one young adult novel, The Devil's Tree has some romance. It's light romance, but that's as far as I want to go. I do. I'm not a romance writer. <laughs> I do think that's a, an important distinction because I'm, I'm thinking of it now. Like I read a lot of the Goosebumps books and definitely read, um, read a lot of the choose your own ending ones where yes I, would, I did too I have like yeah, 18 bookmarks throughout it because yes. I'm like I want to come back to this but I can't read two pages at once and I can like I can remember plots for sure but I like could not tell you I don't think any of the characters I uh, no. I think there was maybe a clown in a department store that might have been the one <laughs> the one like right. a little clown but I think that's a, a good distinction of having character development and the importance of it too because Yes, those books are are very entertaining and enjoyable to read, but when you have an attachment to the characters, like you're so much more invested. You are. Absolutely you are. And I mean, to me it was important to try to balance both the plot and the characters. You know, and RL Stein, I mean, he's a machine. I don't even know how many books he's written. It's crazy. But um I I did the master class because RL Stein has one of the master mm. classes and he is when he talks about it, he is it's all about plot. And that's his focus. And I took one Neil Gaiman's um, masterclass and he's all about character. So totally opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> so it's really interesting. I took them back to back and I was like, okay, wow. I'm kind of in the middle of these two. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've signed up on, on like waiting lists for probably a dozen different masterclasses, but I've never actually 
fully explored one um, officially on Masterclass. I've done like similar types, but right. I, I do think it is like you really do get such a varied opinion, I think, based on who you're you're seeing. But it's just so interesting to see like inside their head, basically. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the crazy thing about, I mean, any artist is everybody works so differently and everybody find. I mean, everybody has to find out what works for them. And ultimately, you know, it comes out, whether it's a book or a film or a performance and, you know, people are either going to love it or they're not going to love it. The media is either going to attach to it and run with it or they're not. But you, I, for me, it's like, you've got to put do make it the best you can do the best you can do and put it out there. And, you know, it's terrifying. I mean, you, you know, that as a performer, if people don't like it, it hurts, <laughs> but if they love it, it feels really good. And then you, then you're like, okay, I got to make it just as good, if not better the next time. Yeah. The work, the work is never truly done. <laughs> it is not absolutely not. And then, I mean, I've got this situation. I mean, I, there was a, I had a novella come out in October and that one is totally adult. I don't want, I actually tell people, tell parents I do not want your child to read this and some people have still bought it for their teenagers and I'm like okay um but it's um the novella is just dark and twisted and it's it's adult horror and that's as dark as I want to go I started writing it I really wanted it to be YA but ultimately I was trying to be truthful to the story and to be truthful to the story I couldn't I mean I cut four pages because my editor was like this is too much (laughs) um but and my copy editor, the cop, we had a copy editor quit and we had to get a different copy editor because I guess he had had some incident when he was uh, younger that it triggered and he just couldn't read it. And I was just like, oh, geez, I'm sorry. Oh, wow. But I was like, you know, I had to be truthful to the story. I mean, I lightened up bits of it. And, you know, horror, horror fans are loving it, but it's only for certain, you know, certain audiences and definitely adult adults. <laughs> And yeah, that one was, that one was hard for me to write emotionally. It was hard for me to write, but the, um, that's why I, you know, again, the middle grade is it's, it's fun. It's so much fun. Can you share the four pages that were cut or are those just going to be mysteries for forever? Probably be mysterious. (laughs) I don't even know. I mean, I must, I'm sure I have it in a former draft. It was just too, she, we we talked about it. I was like, you know, she was like, you had to go there because it's the point of view is the characters. It's a, so it's a, 16th century serial killer. He was real. He's known as the demon tailor. His crimes in reality were so horrific that they burned all documentation with his name on it. And so we don't have much information about who the man was just about his crimes. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. So um, that's why that, that idea just stuck with me. And so it's told from one of his victims point of view, a victim who escapes. So, I mean, she like survived the horrors and saw what he was doing and she got through it. But, you know, I mean, it's, it was horrific. And it was, it was horrific. And so as I was writing it, the, the stuff that got cut, my editor was like, no, you had to go there to really, again, be in the character's head. But that doesn't mean the reader needs to read it all. <laughs> I was like, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And this is why everyone, everyone listening that's a writer, editors are wonderful. They are. They're wonderful. And like middle grade, some people say, okay, well, if you write this adult stuff, but then you write a lot, mostly, I mean, my, for me, the guts of my fiction work is, you know, middle grade and young adult, that that's the bulk of it. And there, somebody asked me, you know, how, how do you know it's right for middle grade? And I was like, well, if I'm not sure, I I asked my editor. Absolutely. I mean, she's worked with middle grade and YA for 20 years. And so I'll be like, is this all right? Or is this off? And she'll, she'll tell me. For both of us, it seemed like growing up we had no problem 
picking up a book, diving into it, exploring, getting lost in the story. But for a lot of kids, reading is not something that they're actively doing. They're, you know, maybe maybe being assigned something in school. Like maybe they'll check out a book once in a while, but they're not as voracious as as you or I were. So how do you get kids interested in reading? I well, it's funny because when I was very young, I had books everywhere, but and I read easy books. I didn't throw myself into fiction till I was probably around 11 or 12. And it took finding something that just really interested me, which in my case was fantasy, C.S. Lewis and Madeline Alingle. Um, So I say, and I do this when I teach writing, I, I, I tell my students, you've got to write about something to interest you. And I would tell, I tell parents and kids, you've got to find something that you're interested in and read about that. So, I mean, a kid that's a reluctant reader, um, if they like science and nonfiction, that's my son, let them read science nonfiction. If they only read novels in school, that's okay. As long as they're reading, whatever it is, magazines, um, popular mechanics, whatever they're interested in, let them read that. And then it'll grow. And if they're not a super strong reader, like my son, it, he was, you know, he was kind of a reluctant reader, first, second grade. Well, then, uh, Captain Underpants, right? He discovered Captain Underpants. And even though it drove us crazy with the potty humor, he, we bought every single book and he sat and he read every single book. So for him, that was a turning point. We found something he liked. And even though we had, you know, the potty humor going on for a while, I was like, the kid is reading. (laughs) I'm going to buy him every single book because they were out. The library can't keep them in. So I bought him all the books and he sat there and he read them all. And now that he's matured and grown, he's like, you know, the first ones are really good, but then they kind of just get the same after that. I was like, I know, but you read them at the time. That's what you loved. And he agreed. So it's interesting watching him grow. But that's that's my thing is if you need to get a graphic novel and so the kids don't feel like they're reading as much because they got a lot of pictures, that's fine. They're still if they're reading those words, it's going to build it's going to build their ability. And if it's potty humor for boys, so be it, (laughs) you know. But if a kid loves sports, find sports book. If somebody likes horses, you know, do horses, martial arts, find stories about martial arts. Um, That I think is the best thing to do. And if they're struggling, get them a little bit easier reading level so they feel confident. You know, yes, I was able to read that mom, dad. Awesome. Let's find, you know, let's find another one. And then when they feel really, really confident, try to see if they'll guide you to a higher reading level and read with them. I mean, for a long time, we read read to my son. And then as we were bridging the gap between us reading to him and him reading, I would start off reading him a chapter. And then I'd say, okay, you can finish the chapter yourself. And so we would give him the book and, you know, say goodnight. And he'd end up reading, you know, two chapters. So those are some things I think really help. But the, but the core of it is get a kid to read what they're interested in. That'll make it easier. Yeah, I think that last tip was actually how I got into Harry Potter back in the day. My my oh, dad yeah. would, had like heard about it and was like, "Oh well, let's read a read a chapter together." And then we finished, and I was like, "I want to keep reading that. Give me that book." Yes, yes. My son, that was like the first big series he read. It was a year and a half ago. He um, he read the entire series in a summer. That is very impressive. And I was just. I was like, wow. Well, he last summer, he didn't last summer. He hardly read anything, but the summer before it was just like, he took off on this reading tear and it was great. But yes, Harry Potter. I have to put this out there too. It's another great middle grade series too, for people who like Harry Potter, you know, RL Stein, um, 
it's uh, Suzanne Collins who wrote The Hunger Games. She wrote um, a middle grade series, which is fantastic, but it's not very well known. You know, it didn't take off like The Hunger Games. It's called um, Gregor the Overlander. And that, that was another one my son loved. So that was fun, Gregor the Overlander. But I do have to say this about Ghost Hunters, the first book, they're still getting the second book. So sometimes, you know, writing is really hard. And sometimes you're having a down day. And uh, one of my son's friends who was a really reluctant reader had Ghost Hunters. And both my son and his mother called, they, his mom called me. And apparently this boy, Daniel, was taking Ghost Hunters and sitting out during recess to read it. And he took it to lunch and was reading it at lunch. And he was reading it in the back of the car going to soccer practice. And it was the first book he didn't want to put down. And that gets me through the tough days. <laughs> so knowing there was one kid who couldn't put my book down, that was awesome. Oh, that is that is so awesome. And I think segues very nicely into a question I like to ask because it's minimal work on my end because you're providing the question, but it's a question that you wish you were asked more frequently. And I liked yours of what's your ultimate goal as a writer? It's probably in part what a lot of writers hope for. I mean, obviously I would, I would love to be, everybody wants to be a bestseller. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people want to be a bestseller. I'd love to, I want to reach a lot of readers. So in that case, I want to be a bestseller because I want to reach a lot of readers. I want to be able to make my, my living full time from writing. Um, you know, I'd like that to be tempered with some, you know, critical praise. I got one good Kirkus review on Ghost Hunters, which was amazing. But so kind of balance between, you know, great numbers, sales, but also um, some critical approval too. Like, yeah, this, this book is good. But also because of my screenwriting background, I would love to see some of my books, stories turned into, you know, a show or a movie. I love adaptation. So one of the things I would really, really love to do would be able to option one of my films or one of my books and be one of the screenwriters to adapt it. Even if I share the screenwriting with somebody else, I would love to do that um, because I think adaptation is so fun. And I've done it before for the stage. And I did one of my short stories I adapted into a short film that we made. So I, I would love to do that. Lovely. Well, we're, we're sending all the positive vibes your way. I think uh, you, are, you are setting yourself up nicely for that. And you're almost off the hook here, but we always like to wrap up with the top three. And yes. Very excited to hear yours of your top three creepiest experiences that you've had. Yes. Okay. Let me think of, okay. There are three. I'm trying to think which one I should start with. Okay. This one I'll start. I'll do chronological order. How about that? We were, we were doing that short film. It was like the first short film I did. I was like 1920 and we were scouting locations in Montgomery, Texas. And the guy who I was scouting with had been out there before. And so he's like, oh, you got to see this cool graveyard. Well, of course the sun is setting, right? It's getting dark. So we go to this graveyard. You couldn't even tell it was a graveyard. It was a, an abandoned forgotten graveyard with grass growing everywhere. And by the time we got back in the trees, the sun had set, it was pitch dark. And there's this cracked um, mausoleum thing. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. So he flicks on a light. And we're going up and we see movement inside the crypt through the crack. And I'm like, what in the hell is that? And so he of course walks closer and this crow comes screeching out at us. <laughs> and it flies over our head. Of course I screamed, 
And that was just, I had had enough of the creepy old graveyard at that point, but it was really cool. And also kind of sad that it, you know, these people's family had been buried there and they'd forgotten about it, but having a crow lurch out of a, um, out of a crypt at night in your face is um, a bit startling and creepy and terrifying. Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the next one, I was at a friend's in London, um, outside of London. Her name's Julia. And she had two teenagers at the time and I was staying there and they had all, the kids had gone to school. She had gone to work and I was getting ready to go out. I was in the bathroom, putting on some makeup and the door behind me was cracked open. And I felt like somebody was standing behind me. And so I looked, I glanced up in the mirror and nobody was there. And I'm like, okay, it's my imagination. So I went back to what I was doing and right over my shoulder, I heard, hello, hello. And I... <laughs> was like, I turned around and nobody was there. And I was like, hello, you're freaking me out. I can't do this right now. And I basically ran out of the house. And then later I texted her and I was like, uh, are you home yet? Are you home yet? So finally, when she was home, I went back home and then we had to go pick up her son's girlfriend from the train station. So we're all riding in the car and I'm like, um, Julia. And she's like, yes. I was like, have you uh, ever experienced anything um, unusual in your house. And she like, I remember looking at her and her lips got really tight. She goes, what do you mean very properly? And I was like, just anything um, supernatural. She goes, oh, you mean the ghost? Yeah, he'll come around sometimes and say, hello, hello. And I had not told her what he said. And I just goosebumps all over my arms. And apparently her kids would not be alone uh, in the kitchen or in the bathroom for the next oh. month after they heard that. <laughs> but she told me he was harmless and he came around a lot and she thought he was just very sad and lost. But I did feel him around me in the house after that. But that was the one and only time I've heard anything say anything to me, the hello, hello. And that was really creepy. Uh, the last one actually happened not too long ago, and it was in New Orleans. We, we had um, gone to see my family on their farm in Florida. It was my husband's family for Thanksgiving. Hey, we, you know, we wanted to be careful with COVID and all that, but we didn't want to drive the entire way back. And so we stayed in, in New Orleans in the Roosevelt Hotel for a night. Um, and so while we were sleeping, I kind of woke up in the middle of the night. I felt pressure on my legs. And I thought, oh, my husband, you know, he was coming back to the bed from the bathroom and he was like, you know, couldn't find the bed, you know, patting the bed for to find a spot. But it was like really pushing hard pressure. And I so I sat up and I looked and he was sleeping next to me, not touching me at all. And I like, OK, so I sat up and looked further over and my son was sound asleep in the other bed. And I thought, OK, maybe my feet are tangled in the blankets or something. And so I just let it go and I didn't think about it anymore. And I went back to sleep. Okay, well, the next morning we ordered beignets in the room so we didn't have to, you know, be around people in the restaurant. And so we're eating beignets. My husband, son, and I were all sitting there. And there's one chair that was not being used, but it had two pillows in it. Well, all of a sudden, one pillow went flying off the chair, and the other pillow picked up and flew off the chair in front of all three of us. And I was like, oh, hello, take a seat. Would you like a beignet? And uh, that was just really crazy and freaky because I've never seen anything lift up and fly off a chair before. And all three of us saw it. Goodness. <laughs> so that was kind of, that was kind of crazy and creepy. So those are really my, I mean, I've had a few other little ghostly experiences, but those are my three, those are my three kind of creepy ghosty experiences. 
a smorgasbord my top of, three uh, spectacular moments there yes my top three so now yes. i want a beignet so you've done great work great oh work gosh. all around <laughs> yes yes and ghost ghost hunters is set in new orleans yeah so yes beignets oh, magical stuff and if people well you can't I, I don't think you can provide them beignets but if they want to learn more about you if they want to check out ghost hunters or any of your other work where can they find you uh, my website would be great. It's uh, sbmacaulay.com. Wonderful. Susan, thank you so much for hopping on. This flew by. I thought you had lots of great tips. I loved hearing all your stories. And tell Jeff thank hi for you. us. I'm sorry if my... I will. And I'm sorry if my elevator was too long of a no, ride. No, it was a wonderful ride. And now we're at the top of the Empire State Building. So it's uh, it's a gorgeous view. Awesome. All around. Good stuff. All right. Thank you so much Absolutely. for having me. And as always, we got to end with a corny joke. I found a nice ghost ghost oh themed one. Where do baby ghosts go during the day? Oh boy, I have no idea. To the day scare center. Oh my gosh. Get after it today, people. <laughs> Thank you. Good People Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you dug this episode, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podchaser, or any other podcast app, I want to keep delivering great content to you. You want to keep hearing it. Tap that subscribe button. We'll see you next time.